Famished Craving, Reflections on the Role Fame Has Played in Human Affairs, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 2. I ended, or towards the end of the session last week, I quoted from the historian Christopher Dawson, who chronicles the interesting in Christian incursion into Europe in um, you know, in the 7th, 8th, ninth centuries and so on. And he talks about the political, moral revolution that was caused by the Christian incursion. And let me just quote a couple of things that I quoted from last week just to get us uh, on track again for, the, for what, what we're talking about here. Uh, he talked, for example, about the vestiges of the, of the pagan system lasting uh, longer in, in the Scandinavian north. And he said in those cultures, often the priest king, the, ki- the theme last week, one might say, the theme of our sessions was uh, the king is the victim with a suspended sentence. And Dawson says even up until as late as the 12th century in some of these northern uh, cultures, the priest king was at the center of the culture. And to quote Dawson, his chief function was to offer sacrifice on behalf of the people for good harvest and victory in battle. But should these sacrifices prove unacceptable to the gods, he himself would be sacrificed. So it's exactly the theme that I tried to talk about last week of the of the king or slash priest being the designated victim who offers surrogate victims until a great crisis comes along and he has to he has to revert to his designated status, which is as the primary victim to begin with. So he's the sacred executioner for as long as his reign lasts, and then he's the sacrificial victim at the end of his reign. So that's a that's the that's the anthropological formula. And Dawson says the coming of Christianity to this Homeric world inevitably produced a social as well as religious revolution. And the revolution obviously had uh, important moral gains. It, it accomplished important moral gains. didn't accomplish them overnight. And this is why people who criticize Christianity, they say, well, look, the Gospels say, uh, you know, love and turn, turn the other cheek. And here are all these people who believe in the Gospels, and they don't do it. And that, so they must be all, the whole thing, the whole enterprise must be flawed. Well, that's pretty ridiculous. To, following the Gospels injunction is an enormous task. I mean, it had... The gospel is coming is 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 undermining some of the most powerful social and psychological reflexes we have, and so the fact that it doesn't do it overnight, it, it should not be held against it. So, any, it, but in any event, gradually moral progress is made, and Paul says the scales fell from his eyes. Well, the scales fall slowly most for, for most of us, and historically they fall very slowly. But the question is whether or not we can recognize a process taking place under the impact of the gospel revelation. And I think we can, and Dawson records some of the early stages of it in his uh, look back at these centuries. He says, however, quote, at the same time, it may be doubted whether these gains, these moral gains, were not outweighed by the loss of the heroic ethos of pagan kingship. So this, this is the question, and it's the question Nietzsche brings to a focus at the end of the 19th century. And that is what's being lost here is what has always held culture together and 
suddenly, you know, Nietzsche springs back from Christianity as though he's been bitten by a snake, and he suddenly realizes that this this thing is destroying everything upon which uh, classical culture was based, all the great heroic uh, principles upon which it was based. And uh, if we let it proceed, everything will be lost. And so uh, he turns on it with great uh, vehemence. Well, already Dawson is seeing that the pattern that Nietzsche reacted to was already visible in these early centuries. And the question is, you could say, I think I said last week, the $64,000 question is, uh, in fact, can these moral gains be shown to finally outweigh the loss of the heroic ethos? Or put another way, and this is also what uh, Dawson says, he says, it may be that the new religious sanctions were not strong enough to compensate for the loss of the instinctive pagan loyalty of the old system. In other words, the gravitational field of the old cultural uh, system was very powerful. It held things together. It worked, and it worked on the basis of some kind of sacrificial scapegoating mechanism. But nevertheless, it worked reasonably well, and now Christianity comes in. It stops working so well. And the question is, can, as Dawson says, can the new religious sanctions compensate for the loss of instinctive pagan loyalty? And it's still a question today in a certain sense. Because we look around the world and what's happening to... It's a, it's a very complicated picture, of course, but in many ways what's happening is, the, is that the old instinctive loyalties are being destroyed. And Jesus says in the gospel, you think I come bearing peace, I come with a sword, the sword will divide everybody. What he means, I think the way to read that anthropologically is that any social order, even the most intimate one, he's refer he uses the family as a metaphor, any social order that generates its harmony on the basis of the kind of scapegoating mechanism that's undermined by the revelation of the cross will find itself thrown into chaos. So that, that's, uh, that, those are the tensions involved. The new religious sanctions to which Dawson refers had some very big shoes to fill. Not only were the, quote, instinctive pagan loyalties generated by extremely powerful social and psychological reflexes, but they were not, as Christianity's new religious sanctions were, contra naturam that is to say they were not they were not against nature and when i say nature i mean the mimetic the mimetic uh, reflexes that generate these these solidarities these these social units at the expense of their scapegoat victims now you know i think it's true and someday i would like to explore it that the soul is naturally christian that's a that's another piece of our tradition i think that's true the word soul itself, particularly once it's imported into the biblical uh, frame of reference, uh, implies some kind of social emancipation. It, it, it implies some kind of autonomy, not, not fundamental autonomy, because there is no fundamental autonomy in the biblical universe. Uh, all social autonomy is achieved on the basis of an intimate relationship with the divine, so that there's no autonomy in the simple-minded, popular, modern sense of the term. Nevertheless, 
some social autonomy is, I think, implicit in the in in the use of the term soul in the in the Christian tradition. So the soul is naturally Christian. I think that's so. But the conventional social self is naturally sacrificial or naturally pagan. That's to say, it's a product of these social and psychological reflexes that are that are embedded in uh, conventional culture, what Paul called the old anthropos. There's a little hint of these, how these instinctive pagan loyalties work. They work automatically. They work spontaneously. That's what makes them so powerful. They don't have to be orchestrated. You know, in our world, we're always coming up with conspiracy theories. When we see these things operating, they operate with such exquisite uh, precision that we think, oh, there must be some mastermind behind this, some cabal of, of, of conspirators somewhere that, that, that are making this thing you know, unfold the way it is. But most of the time, that's not true. It unfolds according to its own logic, and I want to talk about that logic in a second. It's the logos of the process. It has its own logos. And to get, give a hint of that, uh, last week I quoted Kennedy, and Kennedy was referring to some uh, anthropological researchers. In this case, he was referring to the man, a man named Dujalu. And uh, Kennedy comments about some reports that Dujalu makes about these, uh, these kings who are the victims with a suspended sentence. And he says, quote, Between the death of a king and the installation of a new one, a period of lawlessness intervened. And I said last week, modernity, in a sense, is, is that period of lawlessness with no hope of calling an end to it in terms of a sacrificial resolution. If we're going to call an end to it, we'll have to find another way. But in any event, uh, his, uh, this period of lawlessness intervenes after the death of the old king, which is to say the collapse of the old sacred system. There's an interregnum. Without the sacred system, lawlessness immediately develops. And in fact, the, the, in some cases, murderers are, are let out of prison and, and robbers are let loose in, in, as a way of, of, of setting fire to the social order, knowing that, by the way, this, I'm going to talk about Heraclitus' logos of violence. Heraclitus uses the term fire, too, because uh, th this fire has its own logic. And it uh, it burns and burns and burns, and all of a sudden, it's a votive candle, and everybody bows their head, and the whole thing is put uh, is uh, is back in place, and the and the scapegoat is dead. So it's that kind of a logic. But in any event, uh, what uh, Kennedy says about Dujalu, he says there's this moment, there's this period of lawlessness in between the two sacred systems, and then he says, quote. This, as we saw, found meaningful expression in the maltreatment of the king-elect. That little ritual I talked about last week where the, the king-elect is, is uh, beaten and spat upon and so on and so forth. It, in other words, the lawlessness, notice the language here, finds meaningful expression in the maltreatment of the king-elect. Now, there's a little hint there of what I want to talk about right now, which is the logos of culture-generating violence. It has its own logos. And I always remember this, and I think it's in the book, uh, something in H.G. Uh, Wells' History of the World. You know, he wrote that two-volume history. Well, it's kind of a nice read. And he talks about the French Revolution, and he says the, the uh, death of the king was the logical next step at a certain point. It was... The, 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 uh, you know, the Republic was founded... And uh, the logical next step was the 
was the, the execution of the king. And the question is, where is that logic? The logos. There's a logos at work to which we, to which we defer because it seems, yes, well, it, it, we, we realize there's a kind of logic. We don't know where it comes from. There's some kind of logic. And it's, and it's, uh, it's an innuendo here in Kennedy's observation that this lawlessness, quote, found meaningful expression in the maltreatment of the king-elect. Uh, the violence begins to find meaningful expression. That's the logos of violence. And Heraclitus is the pre-Socratic philosopher who first gave non-mythological uh, expression to this, to this logos. And what he said about it was, polemos is the Greek word he used, which is often translated war or strife, or we could translate it just as violence. And he says, polemos is the father and king of all things. He has shown some to be gods, some mortals. He has made some slaves, some free. Everything originates in polemos. All things come to pass and perish through strife, through polemos, through violence. And the way up and the way down are the same. Now these are all, uh, these are all um, aphoristic. This, I think, this is the kind of stuff that. I think Nietzsche caught it, you know, from Heraclitus, and then everybody caught it from Nietzsche. But there's a kind of wild intuition about the workings of violence. It both it both destroys culture and brings culture into being. This marvelous, amazing thing that comes along, and it's totally destructive, and then suddenly it's regenerative. And it's regenerative in the way I talked about last week when when suddenly the polarization takes place and the all against all turns into the all against one, you have the social unanimity generated, a sense of uh, a religious uh, ecstasy, and uh, a new cultural enterprise, so the embryo of a new cultural enterprise is there. So that, that's what Heraclitus calls the logos of violence. It has its own logic. It has its, it's a mechanism. That's again why... I think it's helpful that Girard uses mechanism when he analyzes these things. It happens, it's driven by mimetic processes in a predictable way. Something that had never occurred to me before, and just this week when I was thinking about these things, I thought, how could this not have occurred to me before? The, this logos, which Heraclitus called the father of all things, is the force to which Jesus refers in John's Gospel when he recognized in his audience, even before the members of that audience were themselves aware of it, that they wanted to kill him. He told them that, that though they liked to think that Abraham was their father, their real father was a liar and the father of lies, a murderer from the beginning. And I've done quite a bit with that lately in the Trinity uh, series we had before Christmas and so on. And suddenly now I realize it's an absolute connection here between the way in which Jesus uses the term father in chapter 8 of John and the way Heraclitus used the term father. You see, the father, the, 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 the father that Jesus identifies as the murderer from the beginning is precisely the father that Heraclitus is talking about when he says the, 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 that polemos, or strife, or violence, is the father of all things. And again, to go back to the father thing, and our, everything is so gender specified today that one can't, you know, that becomes very complicated. But uh, I would say we have to cling to father for a lot of reasons. I tried to express them in that series on the Trinity. 
but at one level we could un interpret this word as generator because when we're talking anthropologically we're talking about that which generates culture at the expense of the victim and the generator is the one who brings about the death of the sacrificial victim so those people who insist that we have to say mother father they've got to take the rap <laughs> because whatever it is it's that you see and that's what's being deconstructed in the new testament when jesus insists that his father the father he's revealing is going to take the place of that father who's the murderer from the beginning well so these this whole process this is the anthropological backdrop for what i think is the modern crisis we could go we could continue to see it from outside and to some extent we will but because we're going to be interested later on in this series in questions having to do with psychology ontology uh, the the experience of subjectivity and all the confusions that uh, surround that issue in the modern world i think it'd be helpful to try to see it from inside in other words to try to see that whole anthropological business the power of the, those social psychological reflexes from inside and it's very difficult to see them see them from the inside because once you're inside them you don't see them that's precisely the magic of it you see they have a mythological veil so that those that are caught up in it don't see what's happening and maybe i'll talk about this later this is what this is why we when we look at it from the outside, you think, how could those people possibly believe that? But if you're inside it, it's, it's, it's the synonym for the pure truth because you just don't see it. Well, in any event, I wanted to bring some things that might allow us to look at the Heraclitus Logos to some degree from inside or at least to see it in terms of its moral and psychological uh, effects on, on individual people. And so I wanted to bring some things some of which we've talked about before, not all of which, I'm glad to say, but some of which. And this one we have, and, and it is the story in Augustine's Confessions of, of his friend Olypius, who was a virtuous young man who was taken to the amphitheater by his friends and, and got caught up in what was going on at the amphitheater. And what was going on at the amphitheater was gladiators were fighting and one of them would lose and be killed by the other one and great crowds gathered to watch this spectacle and cheer for the victor and so on and so it was just a sac sacrificial ritual that uh, people came together and cheered about i mean it's, it's like the bullfight only a human victim like a boxing match only something that goes all the way to the death of the of the uh of the loser and so on in any event let me just read you what augustine says augustine is writing this from the perspective of his conversion but he's writing about something that happened to olypius before his conversion so we get we get an access to it which is about the only way you can get access to it because you can't see it using the word the term christian conversion here in a kind of generic sense you can't see it except from the perspective of christian christian conversion on the other hand, what you, the, the experience itself can't be fully experienced except prior to Christian conversion. Or in some, in, in some sense, if Christian conversion can be, can be momentarily eclipsed, and then you can see it. So here's the situation. 
Augustine says about his friend Olypius, I was already attracted to him because of the solid virtue of his character. Now this is important. I want to start with that because one of the, I want to talk about a little bit later on is how we in the modern West have made this conclusion that ethics alone is up to the task of resisting these things. We've decided we can dispense with religion and just have sort of the carry around with us for as long as it lasts the moral byproducts of that religion and that by itself will be enough to ward off these terrible things. Well, if, if there's anything that has been proven by the last 200 years of Western history is that that does not work. But in any event, I invoke that here or mention it here because Augustine says Olypius was a man of solid virtue and strong character. So we're not talking about somebody who's impressionable and easily, you know what I'm talking about? So then he says, nevertheless, Augustine says, nevertheless, the whirlpool of Carthaginian morals with their passion for empty public shows sucked him in to the folly of the circus games. Now, this, of course, is history because, thank goodness, none of us live in a world subjected to the whirlpool of Carthaginian morals with their passion for empty public shows, uh, such whirlpool into which we might be sucked. You see what I'm saying? Well, obviously, this is what made reading Augustine for me a couple of years ago so amazing. I couldn't believe how contemporary it was. Unbelievably contemporary. Uh, so here's what Augustine says. He, Olypius, held such spectacles, these the gladiatorial uh, contest in the uh, in the amphitheater. He felt he he held such spectacles in aversion and detestation. But his friends and his fellow pupils on their way from a dinner, uh, happened to meet him in the street and despite his energetic refusal and resistance, used friendly violence to take him into the amphitheater during the days of the cruel and murderous games. He said to them, if you drag my body to that place and sit me down there, do not imagine you can turn my mind and my eyes to those spectacles. The term spectacle here now is important and its visual resonance is also very important. The dominance of the visual over the auditory now, in the biblical world, there's both, of course. There are visions and there are vocations. But uh, clearly, in the biblical world, the auditory has, pre has precedence. We are called. We are called by name. It's a still, small voice. It's not the thunder, the lightning. It's not those spectacles out there. There's something... Uh, moving in us, you see. It's that voice one hears. It's hearing the cock crow. It's hearing the voice saying, why are you persecuting me? It's hearing the call, Samuel, Samuel. That's the... Now, there's, like I say, it's both ways in the biblical tradition. But very clearly, when we, when we see someone at prayer, we see them with their eyes closed. There's a sense in which... Uh, one, has to, one has to be a little wary of the visual. So powerful is the visual sense. One has to be a little bit wary of the visual uh, in, in, in order to hearken to this, to this call. And even our t the term obedience means to, to hear 
obodire, and so on. Anyway, so the spectacles. And his, Olypius' response is, well, you, I'll go, but I won't open my eyes, and you'll see that I won't fall for it. And this, this is how we all feel. We all feel that we can do that. We all feel that we have the moral resource because we realize it's ridiculous. So we say, in a sense, we say, well, I could go to the Nuremberg rallies without saluting. Couldn't you? <laughs> and we have no idea the power that we're playing with. We don't realize that we're mimetic creatures and how powerful huge mimetic, a huge mimetic avalanche is. So in any event, he goes. And uh, he says, I shall be as one not there, and I shall overcome both you and the game. So he's, he's modern in the sense that he thinks that just by being a good ethical guy, he can withstand these things. And then it says, they heard him, but nonetheless took him with them, wanting perhaps to discover whether he could actually pull it off. When they arrived, they'd found seats uh, where they could. The entire populace seized with the most monstrous delight in the cruelty. He kept his eyes shut and forbade his mind to think about such fearful evils. Would that he had blocked his ears as well. A man fell in combat. A great roar from the entire crowd struck him with such vehemence that he was overcome by curiosity. Supposing himself strong enough to despise whatever he saw and to conquer it, he opened his eyes. He was struck in the soul by a wound graver than the gladiator in his body whose fall had caused the roar the shouting entered his ears and forced open his eyes as soon as he saw the blood he at once drank in savagery and did not turn away keep that phrase in mind did not turn away you know conversion means to turn away to turn around he did not turn away his eyes were riveted, he imbibed madness. Without any, and here's also key, this, this text, by the way, is a piece of, is, it's absolutely precious in terms of instructing us. Without any awareness of what was happening to him, he found delight in the murderous contest and was inebriated by bloodthirsty pleasure. He was not now the person who had come in, but just one of the crowd which he had joined, a true member of the group. He was not the same person. He had experienced a conversion. You see, it is a conversion, and it even is a religious conversion because it has, it has a kind of ecstatic thrill to it, and I'll show that in a little, little later. Augustine says he looked, he yelled, he was on fire, he took his madness home with him so that it urged him to return not only with those by whom he had originally been drawn there, but even more than them, taking others with him. So he got caught up in it. And this reminds me of something that Girard says about what he calls false transcendence. This is the false transcendence of, of the pagan sacrificial system. It has a kind of ecstatic quality. It's transcendent. It is transcendent in the sense of takes one out of one's. It's ecstatic. It takes one takes one out of one's purely limited personal existence and into this, which which is nothing but the but the mimetic uh, contagion. But it it it, it provides something that ha the experience of which is transcendent. 
And Girard calls this the false transcendence and insists that it can only be replaced by the true transcendence, that is to say the relationship to the, to the living God, that those who think you can replace that, that very steamy, powerful, false transcendence with rationality are whistling Dixie, if I may say so. <laughs> it has to be replaced by, some, by true religion. It's a religious phenomenon. It has to be replaced by something. The true religion, which is always a relationship to the living God. Well, that's more or less what Gerard says in slightly more cautious language, perhaps. But he does say this. There is not one element of this distorted mysticism which does not have its luminous counterpart in Christian truth. And th- if you, you could read this whole thing, this, the whole experience of Olypius, which someday I hope to do, and reinterpret the Mass in a way, or reinterpret Christian worship, you see, or, re- or, or read it in terms of c- Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, or read it in terms of Paul watching Stephen be, being stoned to death. When he's Saul, he approves it, and on the road he hears and he realizes he's a, he's a persecutor and he ha- has contrition for what has gone. In other words, there's another turnaround. The point is this pattern applies to us all. It's, the world presents this kind of experience to us because it's automatic. And we, we either get caught up in it or we don't get caught up in it. But if we think we can, we'll be uh, safe from it because we have certain ethical uh, principles that are contrary to it, we're, we're crazy. It has to be because of some uh, religious experience or religious devotion that is capable of producing a stability that will withstand this kind of avalanche. So there is a conversion. Remember, his, it says he was not the same person who had come in. On the other hand, it happened without any awareness of what was happening to him. He didn't realize what was happening to him. Uh, but he was being changed, and he was simply being brought into the culture. You could say it's a, it's a story about how these experiences generate a cultural envelope which is invisible to those inside of it. So so let me just massage that a little bit by uh, returning for a second to some things observations by uh, Jean-Miguel Agrulion, who's a, a Paris psychiatrist who's worked with uh, Girard's work a great deal and has made some comments about it which are apropos, I think, of this. Augustine said of Olypius, he was not now the person who had come in, but what happened to him happened without any awareness on his part of what was happening to him. Well, Ogorleon talks about the crowd phenomenon, and he says what happens in the crowd phenomenon is that, quote, a collective self of collective desire takes over, and everybody gets caught up in this collective self. And this is a typical way of talking about the crowd phenomenon, but I just want to draw it out a little bit and then reflect on it. This is what happens, says Regulion, quote, a new reality is born, a new self. See, this is why I'm trying to see what happened to Olypius. A new self, the mass or crowd, this gigantic protoplasm, this monstrous polynuclear cell, each nucleus of which having lost the membrane that surrounded it and gave it a semblance of individuality is immersed in the mimetic torrent 
that pulls it along with all the rest. Perfect commentary on what happened to Olypius in the amphitheater. The comment that Orgulion then makes is a comment that I would say, again speaking gener generically, can only be made from a Christian perspective, from outside of this system. Here's what he says. Once the psychological crowd has dispersed, however, once the delirium has settled down, the self of desire, which is Orgulion's way of talking about the original self, not the converted self, but the original self, the self of desire becomes reconstituted and amnesia develops. This can be total, quote, what happened? Or more often, partial, quote, how could I have done such a thing? Or why am I bloody? Why is my clothing torn? Why am I covered with dust? End quote. Well, I, I say this is something can be seen from a Christian perspective because it assumes that the psychological crowd will disperse and that the delirium will settle down and that someone will come to their senses. In the ancient world, one couldn't assume that. Culture is what happens before that happens, before the myth wears off, you see. In the ancient world, the amnesia was not total in the sense of what happened. The amnesia was mythological. That is to say, it took the form of a memory that retained some of the actual events, but from which all the morally troubling implications were purged. So you get a mythological rendition of what happened. So it's not... It's still total amnesia in a moral sense, but it's not total amnesia in a, in a strictly cognitive sense because one does remember some of the events, but we do, one doesn't remember them in such a way that they become morally problematic. We, have, we humans have a universal experience. It is only we are civilized. They are barbarians. That, that, that has been, I would say, humanity's universal experience. And why, why is that? Is that because, well, we're biased or something? I think it's more profound than that. We are under the spell of the myth that justifies our madness and violence. But we can see the madness and violence of those outside of our myth with perf perfect clarity because we're not inside their myth. You see? For those not caught up in the spell of sacrificial mythology... Those who are seem completely mad and morally degenerate. Morally degenerate because it seems to those outside the gravitational field of the justifying myth that any child would be able to see through the nonsense that the scapegoaters embrace as unshakable truth. How could medieval Europeans and colonial Americans have believed that the witches were casting spells and cursing their community? How could the German people have believed that the Jews were a subhuman group polluting the blood of the master race? How could the Aztecs have believed that everything depended on the almost constant rituals of human sacrifice that occurred at their shrines and so on and so forth? How could they have possibly... Be? And so we, we humans always see that. We look over the horizon, we see somebody else's without the myth, we, see, we experience our own with the myth. So we make the obvious conclusion. We're civilized and they're subhuman or they're barbarians. There are a couple things we have to notice about this. First of all, those beliefs, the mythological beliefs that justified their craziness, 
were products of very powerful mimetic forces, forces that unleashed the oldest and most intoxicating social and psychological reflexes. And secondly, there are very real and very considerable social and psychological benefits from submitting to these forces. Now, again, if you're outside of it and looking in, you realize the very high moral cost one pays for enjoying those benefits, social and psychological benefits. It's, uh, Olympia, uh, Augustine says of Olypius, he was now one of the group. I'm sure they all left the amphitheater arm in arm, you know, going off to have a few drinks or whatever. I mean, it was, there's socially and psychologically, there are benefits from being caught up in that. And from within it, one doesn't even experience the cost. Outside of it, we say, ah, we see the moral cost one has to pay in order to enjoy those benefits. But inside, precise, the working of the myth precisely keeps us from recognizing the moral cost we're paying for the privilege of enjoying the social and psychological benefits the, the sacrificial system generates, the Heraclitan logos generates. So again, uh, to go back to this question of, the, of how to resist this, the modern idea that can be resisted with ethics is perfectly absurd. Not that we should, not that we should abandon ethics, by the way. I mean, there's very little left to abandon, but we should cling to them as much as we can. And, and uh, you know, there are a lot of people who, who have no religious uh, convictions or predilections at all, and uh, if they have ethical principles, we must salute them and encourage them. So I'm not trying to be too, uh, too harsh on ethics, but to, to think that by itself it can do it, it can't do it. It doesn't have the power to break the religious spell that, that this Heraclitan logos or this holds what Hammer, Bob Hammer and Kelly calls the generative mimetic scapegoating mechanism. And th- this is the thing that is so powerful. And we, we pick up the paper and we, we read about the savagery in Rwanda and what's happening in Bosnia and this, you know, certain things. Like, we can't make any sense of it, you know. And it's the generative mimetic scapegoating mechanism. Unfortunately, it's generativity has been destroyed. I shouldn't say unfortunately. Fortunately, the gospel has done it. So, but unfortunately, in the sense that it, it just gets worse and worse, it comes to no conclusion because it doesn't have the ability to generate or regenerate cultural solidarity now that it's been exposed by the revelation of the cross. Jesus is a typical victim of that mechanism except for one thing, that when he was lifted up on the cross, he began to draw all humanity to himself. He destroyed the mechanism. And that's what I want to talk about uh, here for a second and then proceed back into this material. Ethics by itself is no match for the powerful reflexes that give rise to the primitive sacred system. The revel- so there are two things. The revelation has to come from outside the system. It cannot be generated from within the system because the, 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 the moral and religious wherewithal cannot, cannot live inside the system, cannot exist inside the system, cannot come to birth inside the system. So this is where, and following Gerard really, I, I refer so often to the revelation of the cross instead of just the story of the cross or the, uh, the biblical tradition and so on. And I think Gerard is right 
are intuitively right to, to, to speak in terms of revelation, it has to come from outside the system. And here one gets into, an, into metaphysics, really. One gets into the question of how could, where did this come from? And then you're right into Christian mysticism because if you think that it came out of some process that's, that's a human process, th- then you c- try to find it. You can't find it. Uh, so there have been lots of people crucified, lots of people scapegoated, millions and millions. Cultures have done it for, for thousands and hundreds of thousands of years or social, human social organi- organisms. And we have this one that has changed everything. How did it happen? One can only say it came from outside the system. It could not have come any other way. So that's, that's one thing that has to be said. And the second thing, that the revelation that breaks in always breaks in from outside. And when it breaks in, it has to break in in terms of a religious transformation, a metanoia, not just a moral revolution, but a religious metanoia, meaning a conversion, a a change of one's whole uh, mental and spiritual apparatus. Not not a change that happens overnight, but the beginning, a a significant jolt that begins a process of, of ongoing conversion. So the effect of the revelation of the cross was to cause people to awaken from the justifying myths of their own religion and culture. This is what's so radical about it. It's easy enough for us human beings to look over the horizon and see the, 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 the moral uh, perversity of somebody else's. But the revelation of the cross causes people to wake, awaken from the justifying myth of their own culture and religion and to recognize themselves as crucifiers. In other words, it brings the moral problem back home in both the cultural and in the personal sense. And that's what happens to Peter when he hears the cock crow and Paul when he hears the road on the, the voice on the road to Damascus. So now I want to talk about a little passage in the Gospel of Luke. It's a story of the death of Jesus. I've been, fuss- I've been reading these two verses in Luke for the last month, and the more I read them, the more I think they have everything in them. They have everything in them. Jesus dies, and the text says, When the centurion saw what had taken place, he gave praise to God and said, Truly, this was an upright man. That's verse 1. Okay. Now, the centurion is a pagan. He's a Gentile. He does not not have the prophets behind him. He does not have the Torah. He does not have the the great tradition of ethical monotheism that has gradually come into place behind the Jewish religious tradition. Okay, so he's a pagan. And he's he's a sacred executioner. He's there as a functionary in the Roman system that punishes people like this. And he knows, because he's a good Roman, that the Roman system only punishes people like this. Namely, you know, revolutionaries or insurrectionists or criminals of some kind or these terrible people. He's a good Roman. He realizes that. He's inside the myth. And so, he knows that. And suddenly, this text says that the moment Jesus dies, you see, in the Gospel of Matthew, it says... 
Jesus dies and the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. And the temple is the sacrificial shrine at the, on the altars of which the bloodletting rituals took place, which were just one step removed from rituals of human sacrifice. I say just one step. It's a huge step in terms of, of morality. But nevertheless, it was still a sacrificial shrine. So you have the, the veil of the temple is rent. You see, Luke is writing to essentially a Gentile community, writing for a Gentile community. And he's the one who, who talks the most about this, this revelation breaking out of its, uh, of its Jewish cocoon and going to the ends of the earth. And already there you have it happening. At the moment of the crucifixion, you have a Gentile who's not only a Gentile but a, a sacred executioner who's caught up, one has to assume, I mean, this is the in the structural level of the story, you know, not at the psychological level. The structural level, you say he's a functionary, and he sees something. It breaks in on him. He's never read Jeremiah. He's never read Second Isaiah. He doesn't know squat in terms of the religion. You know, the, the Jewish bias is absolutely true. You know, these Gentiles, what do they know? <laughs> it's to some extent in terms of preparation for this. Never mind. He got it. Now, he doesn't, this isn't a conversion, but notice what happens. It says two things absolutely important here. He gave praise to God, and he said, this is an upright man. Now, he didn't say, this is the Messiah, this is the Son of the living God, this, all, those things that a Christian might say later, but he said, this is an upright man. Romans don't kill upright men. He knew that. The, the fact that Romans killed them meant they weren't upright men. You see? He, that's inside the myth. And suddenly, he said, no, this is an upright man. So there's something slip. There's a slippage that's taken place here that one has to just catch one's breath. It's unbelievable. What this, this little verse is telling us is everything. And he, it says, he gave praise to God. You can't see that with just a moral sensibility. It requires some shift in one's whole religious life. That's what I would say. One could go on and on about that verse, but the next one is even more powerful. It says, because we, here we have in these two verses, we have what you might call a test case. Well, okay, sure. Uh, the, Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. He says, all men, what he means by that is everybody, regardless of their religious background, their cultural tradition, where they are on this planet, you see this kind of thing. And so that's the universality of it. And so here we have a test case. Oh, yeah? Well, here's some real tough cases. How about, the, how about a Gentile? Not only a Gentile, how about a Gentile who works for the Romans, who's, who's actually a sacred executioner himself, who's one of the really loyal guys, you know, who stands there and salutes. How about him? There it is. Luke twenty three forty seven, Like that. Okay, next tough case. Tough test case is, how about this crowd? This crowd of unwashed people that just come out there to cheer on and watch them die, you know, this crowd, there's always been, a, the crowd like Olypius was caught up in, cheering, you know, to see them fall. How about, this is, this is the crowd that comes, in Luke's gospel, this is the crowd that comes out to see Jesus die. 
So this is a tough case. How about the crowd? So the next verse says, And when all the crowds who had gathered for the spectacle, we have to realize that the word gathered and the word spectacle belong together. The spectacle is what brings the gathering about. Gathering not in the sense of just a lot of people coming together, but gathering in the psychosocial sense of generating some kind of embryonic community at the spectacle which is the death of the designated victim. You see what I'm saying? Anthropologically, everything is here. The crowds, and a crowd is just a crowd, until it gathers. The crowd that had come together, you see, we have our word together, it's the same thing. The crowd that had come together for the spectacle saw, and the Greek word is theoria, which, which, which means, I would say means, we have a Greek scholar here so he can help me with this. I would say in this kind, it's the only place it's used in the New Testament, and I would say it has the sense of a, of a panorama. In the same sense in which Jesus, when he's tempted in the wilderness, uh, suddenly is able to see that Satan is in charge of all culture because he can dispense them all. All the kingdoms of the world are at his beck and call. Satan, the accuser, is the, is the puppeteer in terms of the whole, uh, what Paul called the old anthropos, the old human construct. In, so that's, a, that's that panorama vision suddenly that the gospel provides for us. All of a sudden, you see the whole thing in a flash. And here it says the crowds that had come for the spectacle. Now, the spectacle would have been a certain kind of visual uh, taking in of things in that kind of narrow, squinted-eyed sort of uh, thing that happens around the sacrificial event. Suddenly, the crowd saw... Theoria, what had happened. And they turned and went home beating their breasts. Now that's just unbelievable. It's not, again, it's not a Christian conversion. And it's the gap between the deconstruction of the old system and conversion. You see what I mean? They turned around and went home. Now, on their way home, had they run into Nietzsche, who'd say, look, it's either Dionysus or Christ, they would have faced the modern problem. But as it is, they just walk away. And there's an ethical element to it. They're beating their breast. So it has, a, it has ethical consequences, no doubt. It's a sudden recognition. But it's not a conversion in the sense of metanoia. It's a, they, they returned home. So the, they went back. This is almost like the, uh, those who gathered for the stoning of the woman caught in adultery. You know? They leave the scene slowly one by one. In any event, I think it's a tremendously important passage. And I read it because it shows that the... That the the Heracliton Logos, the power of that thing I'm calling the Heracliton Logos, the, the, the generative mimetic scapegoating mechanism or whatever you want to call it, that 
is broken by the revelation of the cross. And so we now live in a world which cannot bring that mechanism to fruition, cannot employ that mechanism successfully and create any kind of cultural consensus based on it that would enjoy moral privilege and last for any significant period of time. Because no sooner has it generated its camaraderie than the next morning people wake up and say, well, with a moral hangover, look back on it and say, wait a second, what got into me? That's what Aurelian is talking about when he says partial amnesia. What got into me? What caught, what, what got into me? Well, they returned home beating their breast. Moral misgivings about the sacrificial ritual are awakened by the cross and the biblical empathy for victims that reached its supreme expression in the declaration of the victim as Lord. The source of these moral misgivings and the guarantor of their ethical clarity is a religious commitment to the Lamb slain since the foundation of the world, the God revealed by Christ on the cross. Modern Western culture, beginning with the Enlightenment, mistook the cultural and moral byproducts of Christianity for human nature and thought the widely held basic morality it inherited could be sustained without need for the religious tradition that fostered it in the first place. Just as we have we made the assumption that the moral premises that Christianity uh, infused in Western culture, we thought of those as human nature. In the same way, we have this idea of religion that is not very anthropologically sophisticated. Our idea of religion is a, is a, is a lot of nice middle-class people sitting very politely and well-dressed in, uh, in a little chapel listening to the parson say pious words. We don't realize what religion is anthropologically. And therefore, when, when people, you know, when we read these things about this savagery and people getting caught up in it, we don't realize it's a religious experience. That's, it's, the, it's the ancient religious experience. And so we have to understand we're dealing with a religious phenomenon. Well, Olympias was drawn into, the, into that craziness at the amphitheater prior to his Christian conversion, but as we well know, there have been plenty Christians who have been drawn into that same madness, and even Christians who have been able to give a Christian sanction to it up until even quite recently. We have all kinds of examples down through history of the successful sacralization of Christian violence. It's a little bit bewildering when one looks back and compares it to the gospel itself. Nevertheless, it just shows how powerful these forces are. These reflexes that that are part of the Heracliton logos, the old cultural system, the generative mimetic scapegoating mechanism, etc., whatever you want to call it, are so powerful that they have that they have commandeered even Christian uh, Christians and Christian religion and uh, received sanction, Christian sanction. Nevertheless, I think that's very much something that will be 
is more difficult today than it has been in the past, will be more difficult in the future than it is today. That is to say, it's something that's vanishing. In order to get a feel for it and then to look back on it and see where we are with respect to it, I want to, I want to um, call to mind something that we talked about here some time ago, and that is a little story, a fictional story by the Russian thinker Vladimir Solovyov. This is an interesting story in a way because it's a fictional story, but it, uh, Solovyov was a friend of Dostoevsky's. Now, here's the linkage, because I want to talk about Nietzsche a little bit, because Nietzsche is very important for understanding our modern situation. Solovyov was a friend of Dostoevsky's. Nietzsche was a very enthusiastic reader of Dostoevsky. One could only wish that he had been a more careful reader of Dostoevsky. Perhaps he was a careful reader, but certainly Dostoevsky's religious sensibility didn't wear off on on Nietzsche. But nevertheless, Dostoevsky influenced Nietzsche. He was a friend of Solovyov. Solovyov was influenced by Dostoevsky and vice versa. So you have these figures, and Solovyov and Nietzsche died the same year, 1900. So you have these figures that are that are grappling with the same fundamental problem. You know, Nietzsche suddenly uh, uh, found Christianity to be this terrible curse that we must expel if there's any hope of, of reclaiming classical uh, culture, the, the great heroic uh, ethos of the past and so on. And to some extent, Solovyov is, is wrestling with that same problem. So he writes this little story that's four people in dialogue, and one of them is an old general, an old Russian general, and the general is lamenting what uh, Christopher Dawson called, quote, the loss of the heroic ethos. And he's saying to these other people, well, you see, it's necessary, he says, for soldiers, quote, to possess an unshakable faith in war as a holy cause. But now, he says, this faith is being deprived of its spiritual basis. Military work is losing what the learned call its moral and religious sanction, end quote. And this is the general's great objection. He realizes, and, I, and, it's, and his, his, uh, his consternation is actually apropos. The, uh, and Solovyov, in a way, is mocking him. But even more viciously, is he mocking the other figures, two of these other figures in this conversation, uh, who, are, who are essentially uh, humanist liberals, who say, oh, well, all we have to do is get rid of these things, and everything will be fine. As soon as we get rid of all these structures, everybody will start behaving. <laughs> it's that kind of thing, and he really mocks them. He at least realizes that the general has a feel for the gravity of the situation. And in that sense, you have to take your hat off to Nietzsche because Nietzsche also realized what's at stake. I mean, when Nietzsche talks about what it means that God is dead, I mean, he really... I'll, I'll get to that later if there's time, but the point is the general is talking about a real issue. And that is to say, if we lose the ability to sacralize our uh, culture-generating and culture-sustaining and culture-protecting violence, then we may be lost because we're very probably going to continue to behave in the way we've always behaved, which means we'll need that. In other words, can we, can we change our way of life 
so that we don't create the need for that system that is now falling apart under our feet. So anyway, he says that this is a terrible thing, that his profession, and his profession is essentially the sacred executioner. His profession is to, is to preside over or to be the administrator of his culture's sacred violence. He's the general. And he said this is a terrible thing because it can no longer be sacralized. It can no longer receive religious and moral sanction. But then he says he has this one supreme memory of a moment in his military career when that was not the case, when he actually was able to unleash all of this violence with the perfect conviction that it was God's will. And he hearkens back to that moment as the, as the centerpiece of his whole life. And so he says, quote, Only once in my life did I experience complete moral satisfaction or even some kind of ecstasy so that my actions were entirely free from considerations or hesitations, end quote. Now, these considerations or hesitations, this is, this is the Hamlet dilemma. The considerations and hesitations are the hand-wringing that begins to happen to those people on whom the revelation is beginning to break in, who are no longer entirely and completely contained inside the justifying myth and therefore begin to have moral misgivings about it. And this is Hamlet. Hamlet was given the perfect formula, which is your father was murdered, avenge him. You see, it, in terms of the ancient heroic ethos, that's the perfect formula. I mean, that's the formula for having no misgivings, no hesitations at all. As a matter of fact, Shakespeare sets up a, a diptych because Hamlet uh, kills Laertes' father by mistake, stabs him through the curtain, you know. So Laertes has the same challenge that Hamlet has, namely, somebody's killed his father, he's supposed to avenge his father. And Claudius, the old king, teases Laertes along. And he's earlier in the play. I don't want to talk about Hamlet, but anyway, early in, the, <laughs> early in the play, this is what Shakespeare's doing. Earlier in the play, Hamlet has an opportunity to kill him and to kill Claudius. And lo and behold, Claudius is kneeling in the chapel. So again, it's the Christian ethos that causes these hesitations and considerations. And he can't do it. And later in the play, when Claudius says to Laertes, is there any place you wouldn't avenge the death of your father. And Laertes says, I'd cut his throat in the church. You see, In other words, here's something that will override even the Christian uh, hesitations and considerations, you see. So, like Hamlet, like Nietzsche, the general in Solovio's story is growing desperate to throw off the moral handcuffs Christianity puts on those whose task it is to perform their culture's valorized violence, the hesitations and considerations. But he says, there was one time when I was, when I was able to throw those off, and he says, quote, this good act of mine has been to me till now and will, of course, remain so forever, my very best and purest memory. My very best and purest memory. Now, that's important in terms of Howard Nemiroff talks about the... Our murders become memories, and memories become the beautiful obligations. It's the myth. The very perfect, the very best and most perfect memory is the myth. You see? And so, 
He says, well, it was a moment when I killed a thousand men. I caused a thousand men to be slaughtered. And here's what happens. It's very much like the Hamlet situation. It's during a Russian-Turkish war. The, uh, an Ar- Armenian village has been destroyed by the Turkish mercenaries. Men, women, and children slaughtered, everything in smoking ruins. The general and his men come into this little village, and they react with moral outrage to what they see. And at that moment, something snaps, or we could say something clicks, because the general says, at that moment, my actions became mechanical. That's very important. The generative, mimetic, scapegoating mechanism. That's Bob Henry and Kelly's phrase for it. It's, it's mechanistic. They became mechanical in the same way that Laertes became mechanical. Namely, outrage at this act is going to cause me to go and replicate it with new victims. And the victims, the reason I can do it with moral uh, uh, impunity is because my victims are going to be the perpetrators of this one. And therefore, I can tell myself that I'm simply killing the victimizers. I'm not victimizing, I'm only eliminating victimizers. In other words, you see the, how the, the, the logos uh, spawns itself. The general learns that the, that the uh, Turkish mercenaries are just down the road, and as soon as he knows they're close by, he says, At that moment, an inspiration suddenly came to me. My agony of soul seemed comforted. His ag- that's the Hamlet problem, my agony of soul, this conflict. And then he says, quote, God's world became once more a happy place to dwell in. And he headed off down the road uh, toward, this, toward the, his, his uh, enemies. Just to throw in a, two things before I come to the conclusion of that story, which you already know intuitively. And one is, the poet, American poet James Wright says, writing at a moment of typical poetic moment of kind of drifting ennui, he says, walking here lonely and strange now, I must find a grave to prod my wrath back to its just devotions. You see, that's the, that's the sense of being kind of lost and not in it or out of it or something, but needing a grave to prod my wrath back to its just devotions. And that's, of course, just what the general found when he came upon the, the, uh, the uh, Armenian village. There's another example of that, a quick one. Again, I've used it before, but it's from Robert Kaplan's book, uh, Balkan Ghost. He tells the story of how in uh, the mid to late 80s, the man who was later to become the Serbian uh, president, uh, Milosevic, began going around giving speeches talking about this the, the defeat of a Serbian commander in the year 1389. And when he gave this speech and talked about how this great leader of theirs had been killed 600 years earlier, just happened, by the way, he started giving these speeches two years before the 600th anniversary. I mean, you talk about political savvy. Anyway, he started giving these speeches. And, and he said to, in his speeches, he said to people, and these are quotes from his speeches, they'll never do this to you again. I promise you that. They'll never do this to you. They? Who's they? 600 years ago this guy was killed in a battle? Never again will anyone defeat you, he said. And he went around and gave all these speeches. A year later, the coffin of this figure killed 600 years ago was 
was taken on a year-long pilgrimage through every village in Serbia. And here's what Kaplan says. The coffin of the defeated Serb commander began a year-long pilgrimage through every village in Serbia, followed by multitudes of sobbing mourners dressed in black in each town. Sobbing mourners? 600 years ago? What is it? Now, remember I said, from outside the myth, nobody can figure it out. Inside it, you're sobbing. What is happening? Is this affection for this guy who died 600 years ago? Is it, what is it? It's, it's precisely what got hold of the general. It's suddenly realizing that all this violence that's rising up in us is, is, the, is the righteous violence of vengeance. You see? Well, so the general said suddenly he realized that God was with him. The whole thing was over, quote-unquote. The whole thing was over, and in my soul, I felt the joy and peace of Easter Sunday. My soul was still in ecstasy with the glory of our fight. Wondrous peace rested on me. I felt all the worldly stains were washed away and that all the burden of earthly trouble had fallen from my shoulders. I was in paradise. I was feeling God, end quote. Now, well, we say, Solovyov got a little carried away. That's what we say, because we can't imagine that in our world. It used to be not so hard to imagine, but we can't imagine somebody being able to put Christianity and sacred vows together that neatly, it, particularly looking back in retrospect. It's one thing to be caught up in it, but to look back in retrospect and still be able to feel it like that, we think, how could that possibly happen? What makes Solovio's story extraordinary is that it's a combination of Christianity and sacred violence. That's the oil and water that will not mix, finally. You see, this is another thing Nietzsche knew. Nietzsche knew that, in a sense. He knew that if, if, the, if pagan culture was going to revive itself, we would just have to eliminate Christianity. Christianity was the rock in the road that would, that, that would prevent us for, from recapturing our greatness and, and, and reclaiming some sense of the old heroic system, which, um, which has at its heart sacrifice and sacred violence.